Today on Your Roots Radio, Becoming Canadian and the Multiculturalism Debate. It's important to remember that in Canada, most of our immigrants these days are skilled workers. And as a result, they do have different expectations than the wretched of the earth, so to speak. When I was, when I was growing up, people would say, oh, it takes a generation for people to become Canadian. I think we don't have that kind of time. I think practically, in terms of the way a country is moved, that we have five to ten years to make people feel they really belong. The fact of the matter is, what is Canada? Is this a parking spot? Is this a, a, a motel on Highway 401? For the last few years, Europe has been racked with debate over the issue of multiculturalism. Some of the most welcoming and tolerant societies in the world have swung completely the other way, demanding by law now that their immigrants integrate and adopt mainstream ways. Leader after leader has declared that multiculturalism has failed. There have been protests in the streets, and of course the killing of 69 people in Norway by a psychopath has led to fears of a resurging white supremacism. Some say that Canada invented multiculturalism. It was the first country to develop laws that called for official recognition of other cultures and beliefs, we funded and continue to fund multicultural festivals and language classes, and we declare that the essence of our culture was diversity. Whatever that means. Interpretation of the Multiculturalism Act has always been open to debate, but it may come under its heaviest fire yet if the flames from Europe manage to catch hold here. Today on New Roots Radio, we'll look into the future and ask if the flames are headed our way, and we'll talk to several well-known people about what we can do if they are. But first, let's check out some news headlines from the world of immigration and multiculturalism. Well, as you probably know, the federal government has banned refugee claimants from using the Canadian health care system, which means that if you're going to seek asylum here, you'd either better be in very good shape or be prepared to suffer. That won't fly in Saskatchewan, however, at least not for one Pakistani asylum seeker who suffers cancer. Premier Brad Wall has said that the province will foot the bill for the man's chemotherapy. He said, this is the kind of country we are. You cover it. Sadder news from Toronto, where Vilma Serrano is dying of kidney failure. She thought her life might be saved when an in-law in El Salvador offered to donate her a kidney. Unfortunately, the man was twice refused entry to Canada to come and test his compatibility as a donor. A Department of Immigration spokesman said last week that the man could not convince immigration officials that he would return home once his visa expired. Now there's a desperate visa scam for you. If you'd like to know more about Serrano's case or offer her support, her daughter has a webpage. Vilmasfriends.wordpress.com. That's V-I-L-M-A-S friends.wordpress.com. In Edmonton, all avenues of appeal have been exhausted for 23-year-old Saeed Jama, a Somalian passport holder scheduled for deportation after he was convicted of dealing crack. On Sunday, he'd been picked up by immigration officials from an Edmonton jail, and by the time you hear this report, he'll probably be in Mogadishu, trying to figure out what the heck he's going to do. Jama is not from Somalia, and according to his parents, has never lived there. He was born in Saudi Arabia, where his parents had fled from fighting in their own country. He's lived in Canada since 2001. At a conference in Halifax last week, the federal government and the provinces agreed to work together on the creation of a new visa system for skilled workers. Called Expression of Intent, the new system will differ from the current system in which would-be immigrants send in an application and wait to be accepted or rejected. 
Instead, the process will be two-stage. Applicants send a short letter of intent, which goes into a pool of potential candidates. From this, the provinces will select based on the candidate's skills and other criteria. Those selected will be invited to make a formal application. The system is based on one originally developed in New Zealand about 10 years ago. And in a few weeks, New Roots Radio will have a New Zealand academic on the line who can tell us about the pros and the cons that his country has experienced with this system. Well, you won't be able to buy your way into BC for the next little while. A fast-track program that allowed foreign investors to immigrate to the province in exchange for a $125,000 bond and a promise to start a business there has been put on hold. There was a surge in applications this summer when Ottawa cancelled a similar federal program. That surge prompted an investigation into BC's system and discovered that less than 20% of those accepted had actually started a business. The investigators called the program disappointing. Get ready for a wave of grandparents coming to Canada, or so says the Department of Citizenship and Immigration. According to the department, Canada will let in a record number of parents and grandparents under the family class visa. Up to 35,000 will come this year. Currently, the waiting time for those who would really like to be with their families is up to eight years. At this new, more energetic clip, the backlog will be cleared within seven. Let's just hope no one else applies. There's been a shake-up in the top 10 list of countries which send Canada asylum seekers. According to Embassy magazine, mainstays of the list, Sri Lanka and Mexico, have been knocked out, replaced by up-and-comers Croatia, Slovakia and North Korea. Sri Lanka had been among Canada's top 10 providers of refugees since 1989 and Mexico since 1996. Experts spoken to by the magazine said that this shows government efforts to limit asylum seeking are having an effect.
Salim Mansour, a professor of political science at the University of Western Ontario, is not afraid to call it like he sees it. In his new book, A Delectable Lie, A Liberal Repudiation of Multiculturalism, he says in no uncertain terms that not all cultures are equal and that Western liberalism is the best political system that exists. But, he warns, it's under threat from multiculturalism. When I spoke to him in May, I asked him how a system with more than 200 years pedigree could be threatened by laws whose chief effect is to fund multicultural festivals. Because it makes the argument that all cultures are equal and all cultures be treated equally. We are an immigrant society. We have people coming from all parts of the world. And instead of expecting and asking that you are stepping out into Canada, an advanced liberal democracy, one of the G8 countries, we are not just any country. We are part of a Western civilization, and we are part in a, of a civilization that have produced X number of things, and I can run you, you down the list. And you are coming from somewhere, wherever it is. I came from India. I was a teenager. I didn't come to be here a multiculturalist. I came here to be a Canadian. And so there is an expectation and a demand that, you know, you are here, you are going to be a Canadian. These are the values. This is the system we're going to adapt. Multiculturalism told us that, well, your culture is fine. You know, we're all equal. A flat earth society culture is equal to the culture that is dealing with DNA and, 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 and quantum mechanics. And so you can carry on with your culture, with your values, and we'll treat you equally. We are having a situation where culture, the people, are demanding their culture be not only treated, but be accorded status. We have moved away from the position of individual rights to group rights and collective rights. That is the sinking of liberal democracy. All right, I get the, I get the general principle that's at stake. Um, but if you look at the Multicultural Act, uh, I mean the content of the, of the act, it seems to be mostly concerned with um, just keeping traditions alive, you know, uh, ethnic customs, costumes, food, dance, that kind of thing. It goes towards funding, uh, you know, the multicultural festivals that we see around the country every summer. Every summer, aren't you hanging an awful lot on something that's uh, pretty innocuous in the end? All that you have mentioned about is basically redundant. It is total redundant. So why do we have to have an act? First of all, we have the, 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 the Charter of Rights and Freedom, and there in Charter of Rights and Freedom, Section 27, mentions multiculturalism. It is totally a redundant statement. And then you have the Multiculturalism Act of 1988, which Brian Mulroney and his government put through. And as I read it, and I've read it, and I've studied it, it is basically redundancy. Redundancy over redundancy. In a liberal democracy, you know, you are free to listen to what music you want to listen, to see what cinema you want to see, to read what book you want to read. I love my Indian classical music. Do I abandon it because I'm in Canada? I cook my Indian curry. Do I abandon it when I'm in Canada? So, see, you see, that's, that's the fallacy of the argument. This multiculturalism is about, you know, reading what book you want, seeing what dance you want, you know, going to what theater you want. That's not what multiculturalism is about. Because when you read the fine print, the fine print is about giving emphasis to group identity, collective right. But in your book, you say it's about more than just that. If You say that if we allow people to develop their own separate cultures, we end up with dangerous ideas flourishing on our soil and even in the end, terrorism. 
You cite the case of the Air India bombers, where Sikh extremists were known to have promoted violence um, among the Sikh community in Canada. Isn't Air India something that could have happened in any country that tolerates freedom of speech or freedom of association? How does an explicit multicultural policy make those things worse? I don't want my tax dollar to go through Multiculturalism Act and, 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 and the Office of Multiculturalism and the Department of Multiculturalism and the Secretary of State for Multiculturalism to go to a Sikh Gurdwara, which I know the Sikh Gurdwara has been promoting the politics under the, under the guise of religion for, Indian, for Sikh separatism in, in India, in Punjab, which is what led to the Air India bombing. And none of the other Canadians had any clue or any interest. And our government, both the liberal and the conservative, were going to those temples to get the votes from those Sikhs so that they could get elected in BC, Surrey, or Brampton, Ontario, and not rock the boat. Because when they were told, and when the Indian government informed them that this is happening repeatedly, well, well this is an Indian affair. This has got nothing to do with Canada. Well, those those Indians were Canadians, but because we had become hyphenated Canadians, which is what the problem is, hyphenated Canadian, we are all living in our own narrow little ghettos. So in your view, how prevalent is this, uh, that terrorists or, or dangerous organizations are receiving funding under the protection of the Multicultural Act? Well, how prevalent? We've had, we have had the Toronto 18, you know, We've had, we have had people who have been arrested for, for trying to be engaged in, 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 in terrorist activity. What is, the, what is the numbers needed to falsify an argument? If you say all crows are black and there is one pink crow, your argument has been falsified. Okay, okay, so we've got these two cases, Air India, and you mentioned the case of <clears throat> the Toronto 18, which is um, the group of young Muslims that were planning bombings in Ontario a few years ago. Were, were, at, were, the, were the actions of the Toronto 18 a result of our multicultural policies? Or was it just that they happened to live in Canada and did what they might have done living anywhere in the world? That is possible too. They would have done it because we've had a history of Irish Fenians and so on and so forth. So what's the problem but, then? I mean, how are things different today? The, the, the problem is that the Irish Fenians were caught. The Irish Fenians were tried. And, 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 and you know, they, they, they were dealt with. The problem is that multiculturalism gives these people the blanket approval to operate as if that they are operating consistent to their own cultural values and since we claim that all cultures are equal we should not isolate and pinpoint and you know get into discussing and probing what we might feel from our standard whoever the we is anglo-saxon canadian you know always the bad guy because they have been part of the colonial world you know, looking into what some Pakistani or some Afghanis are doing. Okay, so we've been talking mostly about people who come from parts of the world that, where there are political problems. And these are people who might have fled here or who don't agree with the situation back in their own country or maybe just have little personal incentive to return. As you know, the government has been making changes to the immigration policy here to um, try and attract a very different kind of person. Uh, educated, well-trained, uh, probably English or French-speaking, the kind of person who probably had lots of opportunities already in their own countries. You've talked about cultural ghettoization, you know, people living in their own little worlds in Canada. 
And it seems to me that it's precisely this new kind of immigrant uh, who's most likely to resist incorporating themselves into the mainstream of Canadian culture because they never had it that bad back home. What do you make of that? The fact of the matter is, it's not the question of a refugee or somebody who is a millionaire trying to make another million bucks. The fact of the matter is, what is Canada? Is this a parking spot? Is this a, a, a motel on Highway 401? Or if, do we have a structure? Well, it seems to me that immigrants should have no reason to see Canada as anything but. Well, exactly. I mean, they've been invited here for that very reason. Yeah, exactly. To, and, to and, and get a better salary. But that's the problem. You ask the majority of the Canadian, put them, put them this question very sharply. If they say that Canada should be just a parking lot, well, good luck. But I'm making my argument that we are not simply a parking lot. We are a civilization. We are a culture. We are based upon certain very core principles that started off with Magna Carta, that went through the struggles of the 15th century, Reformation, Counter-Reformation, Enlightenment, the development of the scientific method, landing the man on the moon. This was not done by flat earth society. This was not done by the Taliban. This was not done by the Bedouin culture. And if we cannot protect this culture, we will be a parking lot. If that's what you want, if that's whoever the you is, want a smorgasbord, well, welcome to it. That was an edited version of my interview with Salim Mansour. The whole conversation was actually a fairly heated debate of more than an hour. Both of us raised our voices on at least one occasion. At the end of the program, I'll play some more of that debate. And I'll suggest that arguing with Mansour actually led us to finding some pretty important common ground. This is the Beatles. Love to you.
Well, not everyone is as worried as Salim Mansour about Canadian multiculturalism. Keith Banting, a professor of political science at Queen's University, thinks that actually we're doing just fine. I spoke to him last May and I asked him why he didn't think Canadian multiculturalism faced the same threats that it does in Europe. What's happening in Europe is a backlash against a conception of multiculturalism that Canada has never believed in. Uh, when uh, Chancellor Merkel of Germany says that multiculturalism has failed utterly, or when British Prime Minister Cameron says that uh, it's producing social segmentation, they're talking about uh, a conception of multiculturalism which says that multiculturalism means leaving people alone in their separate communities, um, not trying to build, build bridges, not trying to p bring people, newcomers into the mainstream of society. It's really a philosophy of just ignoring them. And that's never been what multiculturalism has meant here. Multiculturalism has always been, for immigrants at least, a way of thinking about how to integrate, not whether to integrate. So, you know, Angela Merkel says it's utterly failed. By Canadian standards, Germany never tried multiculturalism. Uh, they've largely ignored their, their uh, newcomers and not given them assistance to enter into the mainstream of German life. And uh, it's not surprising that it's failed as a philosophy. So I don't think uh, when, when they react against multiculturalism, they are not reacting against the Canadian policy model. Indeed, when they begin to engage and begin to develop mechanisms for helping newcomers move into the economy and move into the culture, in some ways they're getting a little closer to us. I think many of my listeners might not be aware of the content of multicultural policy. I think a lot of us tend to think of it just as more of a sort of symbolic gesture, um, you know, a sort of statement about how we would like to be seen. From what I understand, it's mostly concerned with funding festivals and, and uh, ethnic dance and so on. Is it really just a symbolic policy or has it actually had any deep effects on Canadian society? Well, I, uh, I think it is partly symbolic, but that doesn't mean it doesn't have effects. Symbols can have major effects. So let me back up. Uh, multiculturalism uh, as sort of ethnic dance and ethnic festivals is a very, uh, is an image of the policy which has long disappeared. If you go back to 1971 and look at the actual policy statement of Prime Minister Trudeau of the day, multiculturalism had two components. One was uh, a program to help groups maintain their cu cultural distinctiveness through grants and so on, but most of the emphasis was on helping groups, helping members of groups, newcomers, move into Canadian life by having intercultural exchanges between different groups, by assisting in language education, by breaking down barriers to entry uh, into our institutions. So it was always about uh, integration into the country, but it was always about integration. Uh, it was about changing the terms of integration. It was about saying, yes, newcomers should change themselves in ways that make it, uh, that make them more successful in Canada, but Canada also has to change. We have to change our basic institutions, our economic institutions, our social institutions, our politics, in ways which make it easier for newcomers to join us. So, um, and part of that's symbolic, but uh, symbols matter. 
Symbols matter to whether people feel they belong in a place. Symbols matter to how people in the traditional native, the long-standing population, believe they should relate to others when they come. So yeah, there's a symbolic component there, but you know, uh, there is nothing more powerful. There's nothing that excites or motivates people more than a sense that their basic integrity, that they are either welcome here or on the other side, if they're made to feel unwelcome, it's usually statements and and rhetoric that uh, generates those sorts of things. You mentioned that one of the points of the multicultural policy is that it must change how Canadians do business. And that, I think, gets to the heart of one of the most recent criticisms of the policy, um, that it allows immigrants to come here with ideas that are antithetical to Canada and, and perhaps put Canada at risk. Multiculturalism tolerates them, allows them to flourish. And then, if you take the argument to an extreme, eventually leads to something like terrorism. Uh, what do you make of that argument? Is multiculturalism a slippery slope to things like terrorism? No, I, I don't believe that at all. In fact, I would believe the reverse. Uh, so let me make the case by referring to Germany. Uh, Germany, as I said b- before, is a country which has not embraced a multicultural policy. It's never really adopted the kind of, of public statements which support and accommodate and recognize uh, ethnic diversity. It's always been a country where if you're allowed at all, and if you're allowed to be part of the country, you have to become German in the traditional sense of that word. They basically ignored newcomers, and that proved to be a particularly toxic environment in cities like Frankfurt, where radicalism has taken a much deeper root than it has in North America. Um, if you think back to the, you know, the 9/11. Uh, uh, attack and who was involved, the number of people who had a connection in Frankfurt was actually quite high. So there you have a country, didn't go down the multicultural policy route, serious problems with radicalism. Now, flip that to Canada. My own sense, and it's, uh, it's, there's no hard evidence here, is that making people feel they belong, helping people to, uh, helping people understand that their differences um, are welcome as long as they stay within the kind of basic liberal democratic norms, I think it reduces the probability of uh, radicalism. Is it a perfect guarantee? No. Obviously, there were uh, people in Canada prepared to use violence to uh, challenge uh, a particular sort of, or to advance a particular ideology. But uh, I think the chances of that happening are lower, not higher, because of multiculturalism. Yeah, I don't know. Can you flesh out this idea of multiculturalism promoting dialogue? I mean, we hear lots about it, um, but I wonder, how does it really work? You mentioned symbols, um, but I think this is a really nebulous sort of idea for most people. They probably don't realize in their only daily lives how symbols are affecting them. Not to be too cynical, but I remember going to a multicultural festival last year, and it was it was lovely, and people got up and danced and so on, and there were people of diverse backgrounds uh, trying out each other's food. But I never really noticed a sort of coming together of worlds or, a, well, you know, a sort of dialogue, as people like to talk about. Can you give me an idea of really how multiculturalism works on that level? Well, let's take politics for a moment. There's a very interesting study by a sociologist in the United States, Irene Blumrad, who's at the University of California, 
um, and she studied how immigrants integrate, especially Vietnamese and Portuguese immigrants, integrate in Canada and the United States. So she took the same, same two groups, and she studied them in major cities in Canada and the United States, Toronto and Boston, and other cities. And these were groups that came at roughly the same time, roughly the same kind of educational backgrounds, roughly the same sort of economic experiences in the two countries. And yet, in the Canadian case, the Vietnamese in particular, but also the Portuguese, entered into Canadian political life much more quickly. They became citizens. And when they became citizens, they vote. That is, they moved into Canadian life and began to participate in it, helping to shape Canada's future. Now, why the difference? And Bloomrad concluded it was because of the kind of support that came from the multiculturalism program, some of the grants to organizations which allowed them to, be, to help mobilize their community, to help the different communities engage in political life, figure out how to do it, figure out how to become a citizen, support them through that process. She thinks that was the most important factor in explaining why, uh, in a sense, the political system was more welcoming than elsewhere. We see in uh, the House of Commons, Canadians criticize the House of Commons because uh, newcomers, especially racial minorities, are underrepresented in the House of Commons by about half. Well, fair enough. Now that half, 50% representation, is still well above the representation of racial minorities in most other Western democracies with which we compare ourselves. So we've got to be doing something right. You're listening to New Roots Radio, a production of Many Worlds Media in Halifax, Nova Scotia. We are, as far as we know, the only national radio program about immigration and multiculturalism in Canada. If you'd like to find out more about the program or listen to past shows, check us out online at www.newrootsradio.com. We also have a Facebook page at facebook.com slash newrootsradio. If you'd like to send in comments, suggestions, or even, yes, complaints, get in touch at info at newrootsradio.com. There's also opportunities to contribute to the program, and you can write to ask us about those as well. We'd love to hear from you. When the former journalist Adrian Clarkson became Governor General in 1999, she was the country's first from a visible minority. After serving her term, she went on to found and run the Institute for Canadian Citizenship, which promotes citizenship as a good thing for immigrants to get, and tries to build bridges between new and long-time citizens. A couple of years ago, her institute began a new program, offering free museum and park passes to newly sworn-in citizens. On the occasion, I called her up to talk about why she considers citizenship such an important thing, and what led her to found the institute. And that's what I believe all people who come to this country want to be. It doesn't matter if you, can, if you want to characterize them as Ukrainian, Canadian, Italian, Canadian, Chinese, Canadian, Japanese, Canadian. Uh, but they basically, that's fine as a description, and there's nothing wrong with that. But they want to be able to have their levers on all the things that make things work in this country and to have a participation in it and a say in it. Now, already landed immigrants pay taxes. Uh, property taxes, anything, you know, if they have a job, they're doing that sort of thing. They're involved with their kids who go to school. They're involved with their communities. Uh, it's not as though there's this, this 
thing that they haven't participated at all before. But as soon as you get citizenship, then you can vote federal in federal elections. You can become a federal member of parliament or a, um, or a provincial member of parliament. You can do all kinds of things and really participate in the life of our country. But I think it makes a, a lot of sense to make people understand right from the start as a country that we welcome them and we want them to be part of the mainstream and not relegated for a, a generation or two to newcomers. Do you think there's a lot of people who still feel like that, relegated? Well, I'm, I'm worried about that. I don't think that we should take anything for granted. And, um, and I just know from my moving around in new, new Canadian circles that people are anxious for, themse- for themselves to be part of everything. And when I, was, uh, when I was growing up, people would say, oh, it takes a generation for people to become Canadian. I think we don't have that kind of time. I think practically, in terms of the way a country is moved, that we have five to ten years to make people feel they really belong, or they're going to become alienated. They may feel, I, I don't really, really want to participate in a country that doesn't uh, make it interesting for me to be part of it. It's a promise. A citizenship is a promise that can be fulfilled by the person who has that citizenship. There's a sense of urgency to what you're saying. Do you think Canada is at some kind of crossroads at the moment? No, I think we're always at a crossroads. I think we're always... You know, we always say things um, that we, we don't mean or we don't know that we don't mean them because we're asked dumb questions by the media or by pollsters, etc. I remember when the Vietnamese boat people were waiting to come in and there was going to be 60,000 of them and there, were a po- there was a poll taken, do you want Viet- you know, 60,000 Vietnamese to come in within the next year? And 80% of Canadians said, no, we don't. We don't think we can absorb them. <laughs> and, of course, once it happened... They had not only absorbed them, they adopted them through churches and synagogues and community centers and individuals, and they doubled the number of, uh, it was going to be originally about 25 or 30,000, we doubled the number to 60, um, because there was such a demand from people saying, yes, we'll take them and we'll help them. Hmm. And I think that that, that kind of thing uh, is in, in Canadian spirit, because at some point or other, they were taken in. I mean, even, you know, even people that, that you think of as, as uh, you know, as people who might not fit in or in whatever, you know, the Dukabors, for instance, religious minorities like that. The Dukabors were one quarter of the immigrants to Canada in 1901. There were 4,000 of them. We took 16,000 immigrants. And then, of course, it went up by 20-fold by the end of that first decade of the 20th century. But you forget really, that people said, no, Nukabors, do, you know, are they really Christians? Are they really, where are they from? What is, what, what, you know, they speak this strange dialect of Russian. Who are they? Every newcoming group is met with that kind of apprehension as though nobody had ever come before. But it is something that I think the, the country has basically always dealt with in its own healthy manner. So the Cultural Access Pass, um, which your organization gives to new citizens, is basically a free entrance to hundreds of museums and parks around the country. Can you tell us why, um, why, why do you offer this? Uh, the public institutions, the, uh, the museums and all these, these institutions, get public money, i.e. they're funded by taxpayers. And people have been, you know, new immigrants have been paying taxes ever since they have jobs, even before they become new Canadians. So we think that to give a new Canadian the chance to have uh, free access 
to the cultural institutions for a year with their families is a good way of saying, thank you for taking part in this, and this belongs to you. You are a partner in all of this. And it's a way also for the museums to introduce themselves to newcomers, uh, people who might feel, maybe I don't belong here, maybe, you know, maybe this is only for people who you know, for instance, in Nova Scotia, only for people who have been in Nova Scotia for two or three or four or ten generations. Yeah, in fact, that was something that occurred to me. And I don't mean this to sound flip, but, but for you, like, what would a museum say about Acadian wool carters or Cape Breton miners, say, to a recent Iraqi refugee? Or, well, or, they could or, see how hard those people worked. They could see how terrible their lives were. And they could see that not everybody, you know, was driving a, a Lexus and had a had a you know a, a house with with um, uh, with with three televisions in it, you know that that people began in Canada with nothing. Canada is a country started by poor, deprived people. Mm-hmm. People did not emigrate to Canada because they had estates in England. People were the wretched of the earth. A quarter, a third of the immigrants from the British Isles, just to name one particular group in the first part of the 20th century, 1910, uh, 1900 on, uh, to 1914, a third of them had TB when they arrived. A third of them had TB. And nobody turned them away. We simply built sanitariums to put them in. Because immigrants, even the poor and wretched of the, of the slums of Glasgow, Edinburgh, London, knew that Canada had a pretty interesting climate and that out west there was an interesting climate and maybe they'd get better if they came here. So people, you know, forget that we have a real record of having people and welcoming people who are basically have nothing and have nowhere else to go. Um, it's only fairly recently that we got into the business of having people who come um, and are, are people who uh, want to emigrate because they want to place, you know, money into, into small businesses and do that sort of thing. And that is just great. It's wonderful to attract people like that, an entrepreneurial spirit and so on. But the bulk of our, of our immigration in all our history has been from the poor and the people like the Irish who arrived in Canada, swelling the population of Toronto in one summer tenfold and arriving with cholera, okay? So we have a history of being able to absorb this kind of thing. And I think it's in our, in our genes in a way to say, well, we came... And I, and I think, you know, we should be able to look and see and how we can help other people to adjust to becoming part of the mainstream. Well, it sounds like a noble idea, but we can't let anyone get off scot-free on New Roots Radio, not even someone as well-known as Adrian Clarkson. So I invited Halifax-based immigration lawyer Lee Cohen and Howard Ramos, an anthropologist at Dalhousie University, into the studio to discuss her ideas. Lee Cohen began the discussion, and I apologize for the poor quality of the sound in this interview. You can hear um, hissing and an awful lot of squeaky chairs rocking in the background. I, I think it's important, if we're going to engage in a discussion about citizenship, to understand the difference between the two permanent statuses in Canada. One permanent status is permanent resident status. When somebody applies to immigrate to Canada, they are applying not for citizenship, and that's a common misunderstanding. People think that when you immigrate to Canada, you're, Im- you're applying for citizenship. What you're applying for is permanent resident status. And there are a variety of categories or mechanisms or programs through which one can apply if one qualifies to obtain permanent resident status. Once you've been a permanent resident for um, three or more years, and that requires physical presence in Canada, 
you are then eligible to apply for citizenship. So it's important to understand that there is a, a very um, dis distinct difference between permanent residence and citizenship status. But those are the only two permanent statuses in Can two permanent statuses in Canada, and this is the beginning of the discussion for me. I think that there's a need for a variety of statuses because from my professional experience doing this for over 25 years, I've been able to observe that people come to Canada for many, many reasons. And most of them are, most of them are personal. And by personal, I mean it could partially political, partially economic, partially commercial, partially family. But the center of the, 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 center of the decision really is the self. I'm coming for my purpose. I'm coming for the purpose of my family. And I want to, and I want to recreate my family or reestablish my family in another country. And Canada is a really good choice for many, many people. So, the relationship of the um, immigrant applicant to Canada for permanent resident status is different, in my view, than the relationship of a permanent resident applying for citizenship. Permanent resident status generally is more self-centered, and, and, and I'm not suggesting for a moment there's anything wrong with that. No, that, that's interesting that you yeah. say that. Sorry to interrupt. Um, uh, people often do, and Clarkson even addresses that, doesn't she, when she says that we shouldn't be looking down on people or, 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 or the idea that, that people come here, you know, to make a living while they're economic or, that you know, it's, it's a completely selfish sort of motivation. But you're saying, yes, that happens, but nothing wrong with it at all? Unless we're talking about a refugee, which is a separate category altogether, people come to Canada to claim to to uh, obtain permanent resident status primarily for selfish reasons, with a small s, and 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 I'm completely okay with that. There's uh, uh, an educational motivation, there's a commercial motivation, there's a variety of family reunification, a variety of motivations, all of which are legitimate, purposeful, and appropriate. But the relationship of the applicant, the permanent resident, to Canada is more utilitarian than the relationship should be for a person wishing to achieve citizenship in Canada. And, and kind of going to the end of my discussion at the early, at the beginning, I, I, I've always been of the view that we shouldn't have just one status of permanent residence. We should have a variety of statuses under the permanent resident label to meet the needs of the people who are applying to come to Canada and who are coming to Canada. And then there should be a whole other separate um, set of criteria um, for citizenship. Uh, the, the relationship of the permanent resident applicant to Canada is more utilitarian in nature. The relationship of the citizenship applicant to Canada, I think, is a, um, a higher-end relationship, a more emotional relationship, uh, a greater sense of commitment to the enterprise of Canada mm -hmm. to move the nation forward. I don't think you should have to have that high-end commitment to Canada just to be a permanent resident. I don't think we should uh, belabor the permanent resident with that responsibility. But if you want to take on the responsibility to move the nation of Canada forward, um, it should be available to you. But it should be of um, it should be a commitment that's considerably more than the permanent resident commitment. I guess what some people would say to that, and Clarkson even does say that she's actually worried that unless we make that commitment as soon as possible, or unless immigrants make the commitment as soon as possible, unless they move from the utilitarian to that sort of mystique of, of membership. Um, th there's a chance that people are just going to become disaffected, disillusioned, that, that uh, uh, ethnic groups are going to sort of fish in off into their own little, little cliques, I suppose. Wh what do you think about that? I, I don't buy that. I don't think that's necessarily true. I think that, um, 
I, th I think that, uh, um, first of all, there isn't a lot of mystique to citizenship. I think by the time permanent residents are at the point in their relationship with Canada where they want to uh, obtain citizenship, they're um, very well connected to many aspects of the country. I don't think not having citizenship from the get-go causes people in particular ethnic groups or religious groups or social groups to uh, hunker down and uh, circle the wagons kind of thing. Howard Ramos, you wanted to jump in there. Yeah, I thought it's worth kind of expanding a little bit about uh, one of the reactions I had to Adrian Clarkson's comments is she has quite antiquated version of how she thinks of citizenship and Canadian citizenship in particular in respect to immigration. She talked about people coming from uh, Europe. She talked about people suffering. She talked about the poor and the wretched. Uh, and it's important to remember that in Canada, most of our immigrants these days are skilled workers who are actually upper-middle-class people from quite established backgrounds who are making a decision to migrate to a country to better their economic opportunities, to give better chances for their families. And uh, as a result, they do have different expectations than the wretched of the earth, so to speak. Uh, the other thing that I, I kind of also wanted to expand on was that she also sees citizenship in a very one-way street that the immigrant is going to have to make a commitment to learn Canadian values, that the immigrant will have to go to museums. And I think that's a great thing to be doing. But at the same time, very much as we were already talking about, Canadians actually have a very poor understanding of what citizenship is, as well as the rights that are involved with citizenship. So although citizenship affects immigrants, we also don't recognize how citizenship is different among Canadians. For instance, special recognition of Aboriginal rights, which also affects citizenship. Uh, so this is a very important part of the puzzle if we're going to think about citizenship in a multicultural society. is not only how immigrants are going to orient towards citizenship, but how Canadians are going to also uh, take on their responsibilities of citizenship towards those who are coming and migrating. What do you tell people, Canadians who are already here, uh, how do you get them to sort of take on this sort of greater idea of a global citizenship? Well, I think that education is a, a big part of it. I think that within provincial curriculums, uh, within universities, it's important for us to teach some of the basic elements of, of the Canadian constitution. If you ask many people, what do you know of Canada's rights and responsibilities, very few Canadians actually are, are that aware of uh, what they are. And so education, I would say, is definitely a, a first place to put emphasis on, but also just cultural understanding, uh, being curious, promoting curiosity, promoting interaction. These are places where I think that it really could improve this kind of dialogue.
branche, moi je marche Dans la nuit, les bras tout devant moi Et la lumière si douce de la lune Ne tombe que sur les arbres tombés déjà first contacted Salim Mansour, who we heard at the beginning of the show, he said he didn't want to just do sound bites. He wanted a dialogue. And that sounded great to me. I leapt at the offer. And it was an exciting and wide-ranging debate, although we may have gotten a little overzealous. Okay. Well, no, nobody, I'm, I'm, no, so no, 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 nobody, no, nobody, nobody, and, and, and Conrad doesn't have a clue about Sharia because Conrad has not dealt with or studied Sharia. 
But that's very different from the issue that you're discussing, which is the no, it's not particular... different. It's you who are making the okay. difference. Well, I'm not making any. Okay, I'm okay, okay, okay. I'll, I'll admit, I'm not convinced by his absolute faith in individual liberty as a political philosophy. I live in a suburb that's a triumph of North American individualism: big houses, big trucks, and big, broad, leafy sidewalks, and nobody on them. Everyone's inside playing Xbox. Yes, I think it can be a lonely philosophy sometimes. But lonelier still, I think, is the absence of debate about these issues. And I think much of the fault lies with the institutions that are supposed to foster it. The CBC is not going to interview me because they have their multiculturalism as a sacred canal, and they don't want to listen to somebody who is a brown guy like me talking against multiculturalism and, 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 and basically showing where the fallacy is. But I think right across this country that I have traveled, in the small communities, People have welcomed what I have to say, or people even have to say much more than what I've had to say. Well, I can't speak for the CBC, but I've also seen debates stymied in public forums. Like this spring, when I talked about multiculturalism to a university class. The students sat in prim silence, afraid to make any comment that might be construed as politically incorrect. But when I assured them that they, would say, that they could say what they wanted to without it affecting their marks, they unleashed a torrent of frustration. Immigrants were taking their summer jobs. You couldn't say Merry Christmas at school anymore. Why did they have to feel so guilty about singing O Canada? Now, I didn't agree with much of what they said, and I told them so. But in the end, I think we were all better off for hearing what the other had to say, because it forced us to think about our own ideas. And nobody got hurt. So, come on media, come on universities, NGOs, even my neighbors with your trucks and your Xboxes. Let's start having some real dialogue even if that means rolling with a few punches. It might actually bring us closer together. We are creating a society that we are going to muzzle and destroy free speech okay. because of our political correctness. We are not confident enough to stand up and defend it. That's why we have Mark Stein and Ezra Levant hauled away. That's why in Europe you have Geet Wilder and others hauled away. And that's, that's, why, is, that's why we have Salim Mansour on New Roots Radio, which is... As far as I know, we're the only radio programs that, that promotes all of these kind of things you want to get rid of. I mean, it's, it's actually interesting. Thank you very much. I mean, the, the, the mantra of the ones who want to promote multiculturalism in Canada at this moment is dialogue. They're always seeking to promote dialogue. And if we ever do get any government funding or funding from an NGO, it will be because you know, we're here to supposedly promote dialogue. Oh, I've forgotten where I was going with that now. Um, but is it, I mean, isn't, it, sorry, isn't that what you're looking for? I mean, it sounds like yes, that's what you're I want, looking for. I want dialogue with Conrad. I don't want dialogue with Flat Earth Society. I don't want a dialogue with Taliban. They are my mortal enemies. Hmm. Dialogue with the Taliban? Well, perhaps in a future New Roots radio. Well, you've been listening to New Roots Radio, a production of Many Worlds Media in Halifax, Nova Scotia. We're all the way off on the East Coast, but we're trying to make this a national program. So if you have suggestions of people we should interview or stories we should cover, get in touch. Info at NewRootsRadio.com. That's info at NewRootsRadio.com. And if you'd like to know more about the program, check us out online at www.NewRootsRadio.com. The show was written and produced by myself, Conrad Fox. Many thanks go to Adam Shake for our theme song. And you can find more of Adam's optimistic world music at SonicTurtle.com. Also, thanks to the Multiculturalism and Multimedia Project of the United Nations Association of Canada for helping us find contributors from across the country. You'll be hearing more from them next week. 
And a warm hug of gratitude to Rosie Franco for all the ideas she's put into this program, perhaps without realizing it. Next week, we're going south of the border to find out about immigration and multiculturalism in the land of the free. See you next week. <laughs>